tonight, Lord are with you, we'd like to go back to the book of Esther in chapter 7. As we've been moving through the book of Esther, we have been seeing the hand of God providentially moving in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people. Uh, when we get to chapter 7, that's not going to be an exception to that. It's going to be the same thing. But before we go into chapter 7, I'd like to go back to the last verses of chapter 6 where we finished in our last service. In the last verses of chapter 6, we read the account where Haman went and got Mordecai and put him on the horse of the king and put the king's crown on his head and the king's apparel around his shoulders. And he led him down the streets of the city and the people were bowing unto Mordecai and giving him honor. This all came about because the king couldn't sleep one night. Now, I want you to just think about that for a second. Because if the king had slept as usual and slept well, he never would have called for the chronicles. If he had not called for the chronicles, it would not have been revealed unto him about the plot that Mordecai had discovered of two men that was going to assassinate the king. And therefore, the king would not have been pondering how to honor this man and the events that we're talking about never would have taken place. But he did have a sleepless night. And the chronicles were called. And they read about an event that the king was totally unaware of. He didn't even realize that his life had been in danger. He didn't even realize a man by the name of Mordecai had revealed the plot of two men to assassinate him. So he asked the question, what should be done? Or what was done for the man? And they said, well, nothing. So that led to him having Haman to parade him down the streets of the city. Now when they come back, I want you to see a contrast between Mordecai and Haman. Haman was devastated. If Haman had been a man of humility, he'd have been glad to have done what the king asked him to do. But he was not a man of humility, he was a man of great pride. He was a man who had an office and a title and authority and power and money. It all exalted him greatly. And the thing that Haman also did not realize, in fact, I was thinking about this a little early today, is the fact that if Mordecai had not exposed the plot and the king had been assassinated, Haman never would have even been promoted. <laughs> Haman owed Mordecai you might say, a thanksgiving for that because the king's life was spared and the king promoted him right after that. So if the king had been assassinated, Haman never would have been in the position that he was in. The Bible teaches us clearly in many places the importance of putting on humility. We read in the book of 1 Samuel 2 and 8 where Hannah breaks out into a song. After the Lord had blessed her to conceive and have a child, Samuel... And she said that the Lord raised up the poor out of the dust and the beggar out of the dunghill. That's just a good place to be, isn't it? Just be down in the dust. That's the place where the Lord reaches down from heaven with his hand of mercy and brings the poor out of that condition. He raises the poor out of the dust and, and the beggar out of the dunghill. That's repeated in another place in the Word of God, in the, in the book of Psalms. We find in the New Testament, we don't just have to go to the Old Testament, read about people like Haman and Nebuchadnezzar as examples, clear examples of pride. Uh, we can come to the New Testament and see how it exists even among the disciples. 
You go to Matthew chapter 18, and that opens up with the disciples asking a question among themselves, who should be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, is that humility or is that pride? And the Lord took a little child and set the child in the midst of them and told them, except you become converted and become as this little child right here, you shall know no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you don't enter into the kingdom of heaven, then I think the question is going to be the greatest is <laughs> not even to be considered, correct? He said, you need to be like a little child. You know, children play. Sometimes they uh, get uh, miffed at one another, and two minutes later they're playing with each other again, and they just have a good time, one thing and another. And that's kind of the spirit and attitude we ought to have, you know, toward one another. Uh, so the Lord taught them that lesson there in Matthew 18. Well, two chapters later in Matthew 20 and the 20th verse, we find where the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, comes to the Lord and makes a request. And she wants to see if the Lord will place her two sons, one on the right hand and one on the left hand. <laughs> now the Lord explained to her that wasn't his to give to begin with. And that led to the 28th verse where the Lord said, For the Son of Man came not in this world to minister, I mean to be ministered to, but to minister. Even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, didn't come to be ministered unto. He came to minister. He said, He that's grace among you shall be a servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, the way of greatness is by serving. And that's, that's how God counts greatness, you see. And then a little bit later in Matthew chapter 23, you're going to find where the Lord tells his disciples how the Pharisees and the scribes left to sit in Moses' seat. And they love the uppermost rooms at the feast. When they come to a feast, they like to go to the uppermost rooms, you know, the high places. And he tells them, he says, now, what you see them do, you observe, uh, but do not, he says, because they do a lot of talking, but not a whole lot of doing. That's <laughs> basically what it comes down to. And the Lord said they like to be greeted in the marketplaces. They like to be called rabbi. He said, but call no man rabbi, for Christ is your master, and you're all brethren. And call no man father, for you have one father in heaven. It just amazes me how that verse is right there in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, and yet there's a great multitude of people in this world today that will call an earthly man in a religious way father. He's not talking about not calling your own biological father father. That's fine. But you call no man father in a religious way. Uh, and he says and you call no man, not only rabbi or father, but call no man master, for Christ is your master. And again, you're all brethren. So that's just three examples I've given you here where the Lord is having to teach his own disciples about the importance of humility in contrast to prayer. Uh, the Lord then went on to say there in Matthew 23, He that's exalted shall be abased, and he is abased shall be exalted. So the way up is down, and the way down is up, you see. So the Lord had to teach his disciples on a regular basis. That's why we have the foot washing service, as we enjoyed so much uh, last uh, Sunday, last weekend. That's it, a picture of humility. It, it's a picture of our desire to be at the feet of our brethren, and to serve one another. And that's what the Lord taught him in John chapter 13, uh, when he laid aside his garments and uh, girded himself about with a towel. 
And he poured water in a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples. That's just an amazing event when you think about it, how that Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son, was willing to bow down and wash the feet of sinful men. The sinless man washed the feet of sinners. The king of glory washing the feet of the subjects of the kingdom. The savior of the elect, the savior of his children, bowing down and washing the feet of those that he came to save. Uh, Peter, I think, was very sincere when he said, Lord, thou shalt not wash my feet. And the Lord said, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter said, Lord, not on my feet, but wash my head, my hands. Just the very thought of not having fellowship with the Lord, being a partaker with the Lord, was enough to shake the apostle Peter up. And so we have a contrast here between Mordecai and Haman. You'll notice that the Bible says after they got back, Mordecai went back and sat at the gate. That's where Haman found him, sitting at the gate. That's where Haman left him, sitting at the gate. You see, nothing changed in Mordecai. He didn't get the big head. He didn't get exalted. He didn't get lifted up with pride. He didn't make a request to be paraded down the street. They came and got him, you see. They came and got him. I wonder what he thought when they came to him. And, and, and Haman, the very man that he knew despised him, came to him and told him what they was about to do and put the king's apparel on him and the king's crown on him and put him on the king's horse. And then Haman himself led him down the streets for everybody to bow down to. That's how chapter 6 ends. Also notice the contrast between the two meetings that Haman had with his wife and his friends. You know, in the first meeting, he comes to back home, and he begins to boast about his family, begins to boast about his children and his riches, and how he had been promoted by the king, and that he only had been invited by the king, or with the king, by Esther the queen, to that first banquet. And he said, but the one thing that bothers me is this man Mordecai. He will not bow down to me. Everybody else bows down, but not Mordecai. And so his wife said, well, the best thing to do here is to have a gallows made and just have him hung thereon. And that seemed to really make Haman feel good. That was a good plan. But let's notice the second time he comes home to his wife. The second time is the end of chapter 6. Second time when he comes back home, and he tells his family what's just happened. He, and he came back with his head covered. He was humiliated. He came back with his head covered, and he tells his family what's happened. And they now said, well, if, you, if Mordecai being a Jew, and you have had to do this unto him, uh, they're saying, uh, your end is in sight. <laughs> in other words, uh, notice the contrast between these two meetings. So chapter 7 opens up with the king and Haman going to the second banquet of the queen. Now, I want you to think about Ecclesiastes 3.1 for just a moment. The wise man Solomon said in this text, To everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under the heavens. And then he gives 28, 14 uh, uh, different categories of where there's, all, there's a season and a time for every purpose. And in, the verse, in verse 7, it's this. There's a time to keep silent, and there's a time to speak. The older I get, the longer I continue along in life, the more important I see this, that oftentimes when you have something important to say, the timing of saying that is about as important as what you have to say. 
And you'll notice uh, the first time that Esther approached the king, she said, if I perish, I perish. But she didn't approach until they had fasted and prayed for three days. She now approaches the king, and that was a crucial time. As you remember, we spoke on this. Will he hold out the golden scepter or not? If he does not hold out the golden scepter, they will come and take her, take her away, and she shall be slain. Her only hope is that the king will hold out the golden scepter. And so will he hold it out or will he not? Well, we know that he did. And when he held it out, he was just telling her, symbolically speaking, you're pardoned. You have transgressed my law, but you have been pardoned. And I will receive you. Now, as she comes to the king, he asked her the first time, what is thy request and thy petition? And she delays it. Now, you might wonder, why didn't she just tell him in the very beginning? Remember Ecclesiastes 3.7? There's a time to keep silent, and there's a time to speak. Now, only the Lord knows these times. That's why we need to pray to him. The Lord to direct our thoughts, direct our words, and direct our steps. And that we might be in the right place at the right time. I believe that's very important, being in the right place at the right time. She could have asked him on that first occasion, but she did not. And so the king told her, he says, I'll give even up to half the kingdom. And I've already told you, uh, that's not to be taken literally. But what that is saying is the king is telling her, I will be very generous unto you. What is your request? What's your petition? I'll be very generous unto you. And so she invites him to the second banquet. And that's where we're at here in chapter 7. Now, when she first approached him, she did not give him her request. They come to the first banquet, and the king asks her the second time. She does not make her request known this time as well. So now we come to the second banquet. And this is banquet number seven, if you've been keeping up with them, since we started chapter one in the book of Esther. This is banquet number seven. And they come to the banquet. Now let's think about the three people at this banquet. Let's think about Esther. Let's think about uh, Haman. And let's think about the king. Now when they went to that first banquet, I'm sure that, well, I know that Haman went very merrily. Things have changed since then. I don't know what Haman was thinking, but while he was glad to be going to the banquet, at least he didn't know what awaited him, of course. Uh, he didn't know this was going to be his last meal. He didn't know in going to the banquet he was really going to a necktie party that we'll see in a little bit. So I don't know what all he was thinking. The king has got to still be wondering, what is Esther's request? Why has she not made a request or petition known to me at this particular time? And then there's Esther. Esther's got to have courage, because this is going to be a crucial time. Just like it was when she approached, would he hold out the golden scepter, or will he not? What will be the king's reaction? Just because she makes a request doesn't mean the king is going to grant it. Just because she makes a request does not mean that the king is going to give her a favorable reception to it. Monarchs and this king here we've already seen can be quite moody. You never know what they're going to be thinking about. But to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. This reminds me once again, I think we may have mentioned this earlier in some of our studies of the book of Esther, when Nehemiah had got news that the streets of Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed, how the walls had been broken down, how the gates had been burned with fire. 
And several months went by, and he prayed. You read a, a very wonderful prayer recorded in detail in Nehemiah chapter 1. But then you come to Nehemiah chapter 2, and several months have passed by. And Nehemiah, who's a cupbearer to the king, comes before the king that day. He says, he said, I brought the king his wine. And the king looked at me, and I had a sad countenance. And the king said, Nehemiah, why are thou so sad, seeing you are not sick? He knew Nehemiah was not sick, but Nehemiah had a sad countenance. And that was out of the ordinary. That was unusual. The Bible says Nehemiah then told him what his request was for his people. He wanted to get a leave of absence. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem. He wanted to rebuild the wall. He wanted to rehang the gates and restore the worship in Jerusalem. He could not do that unless he got a favorable reception from the king. And then we find where the Bible says that Nehemiah prayed. And that's one of them quick prayers. It's one of those emergency prayers. It's one of those uh, you ain't got time to take all day. You just get right to the point. And I'm sure Nehemiah probably said, Lord, help me right here. Help me know well, what to think. Help me know what to say. This is a critical time. Well, this is a critical time for Esther as she comes to the king at this particular point. She does not know what his response will be. She does not know uh, how he will react to her request. And she's got to have enough courage to make it. Where's she going to get the courage? Well, the Lord's going to give it to her. Where's she going to get the strength? The Lord's going to give it to her. I think we mentioned this again previously, the last verse of Psalms 27, where it says, you know, casting your, your care upon the Lord, he says, he shall strengthen thy heart, and he shall give thee courage and strength. He, he gave it to her the first time, he's going to give it to her the second time. Now, in the book of James chapter 5, we read where it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Remember, this all got started several days before when Mordecai, and all the Jews in the city of Shushan fasted and prayed for three days. And we find where Esther and her maids in the palace have fasted and prayed for three days. Uh, I'm going to tell you, prayer is an important tool in the life of the child of God. Uh, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, and this woman is righteous, it avails much. And we're going to see that here. What again will be the king's response? They brought to the banquet... And the king said again to Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? It shall be formed even to the half of the kingdom. That's the third time that he said that to her. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight. Now, I love the way Esther approaches it. This shows the wisdom of Esther. I believe Esther no doubt had prayed for wisdom. I have no doubt that Esther probably had rehearsed in her mind, when I get the chance, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? <laughs> you know, I don't have any doubt she had meditated on this and thought about this so often, and now the time had arrived. She's got to have wisdom. She's got to have strength. She's got to have courage. She's got to be willing to speak. This is the opportunity. Now is the time. You know, it reminds me of an experience that David had one time. Uh, <clears throat> I think so in 1 Samuel 5. But anyway, you'll find where the Philistines came against David. And the Bible says, David inquired of the Lord. You'll find that several times in David's experiences, where it says, and David inquired of the Lord. So he inquired of the Lord concerning the Philistines who'd come against him. And the Lord replied unto David, he says, you rise up and go against them, 
and I will give them to thy hand. Well, sure enough, David did what the Lord said, and he won the battle. Well, almost immediately after that, we find the Philistines coming again to David. And David once again inquires of the Lord. Now, notice here, this is a different situation, right? You got David, you got the Philistines, that's all the same. But now, God gave David the power he needed the first time, but this is another time. And that's a lesson for all of us. God's grace that was given you yesterday to carry through yesterday was wonderful, but today's a new day. And tomorrow be a new tomorrow. And every time a minister gets up to preach, he, he needs the same grace he needed the last time he preached and the time before that that he preached. And there's never a time a man gets up to preach that he doesn't need a renewal of God's grace once again. And so we find where David inquires of the Lord again what he should do. Should I go up against them? The Lord said, no. He said, I want you to go around behind them. I want you to pass around behind them and set an ambush over where the mulberry trees are at. He says, when you hear a stirring in the top of the mulberry trees, then you go. Now, what's the difference? I don't know. All I know is the first time he said, you go up. Second time he said, no, you wait. And you circle around behind them where the mulberry trees are at. And when you hear a stirring in the top of the mulberry trees, that's when you're to act. Again, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heavens. Now, God knows when the right season is. I don't. But see, if I ask God, I think God will tell me. Isn't that great? <laughs> I think God will show me if I just ask him about it. And I was thinking, actually, earlier today, of all the doors in my lifetime that God has either opened or God has closed. He's probably closed more doors than he's opened, but a closed door can be just as great a blessing as an open door. Always remember that. A closed door can be a great blessing in your life. I can look back tonight, had time, I could go into details, but I won't this evening, of doors that God closed. I believe God closed them, didn't understand it at the time. But down the road, I looked back and I said, Lord, thank you for that. When I found out more about the situation, when I found out more about the, you know, what I already got into, I just went back and said, Lord, I thank, I thank you for closing that door and not letting me walk through it. So a closed door can be a great blessing just like an open door can. Well, Esther is before the king. She's going to make her request. But you notice how she starts it out. If I found favor in thy sight, O king. If it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. When the king and Haman go to this banquet, they do not know that Esther is a Jewish woman. They're going to find this out for the first time. I know that had to startle the king. And that's not all that's going to startle him. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. She uses three words, all meaning the same thing. My people are sold. How were they sold? Well, the king is the one who actually sold them. He sold them unto Haman for all that money that Haman promised to put in the treasury. She uses the word destroy, slain, and perish, all meaning the same thing. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I'd held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. She said, if we'd just been sold into bondage, I wouldn't be making this request, king. I mean, that'd be bad enough, wouldn't it? 
to be so into bondage as bond women, as bond men? She said, if that had been the case, I wouldn't have said a word. But it's worse than that. We've been sold to be destroyed. We've been sold that we might perish. We've been sold that we might be slain. Then king answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? Pause. Wonder what Haman is thinking now. Wonder what Haman is thinking now. This is not turning out the way Haman thought. Haman's supposed to be going to the second banquet, just him and the king. Uh, he's quite proud about that. Now the queen has exposed his plan that the king does not realize the depth of. And here's another thing. You know, the book of Proverbs 18, 13, it says, He that answers the matter before he heareth it, he says, is a fool. Now that's a, that's a great lesson for all of us to learn. If you hear something and you draw a conclusion before you get all the details, then you're not a wise person. You should never draw a conclusion to anything till you've got both sides of the story, till you've got all the details or whatever's under consideration, because by nature, the very first thing you hear causes you to draw a conclusion. See, when you're in a courtroom, you've got a judge, you've got a jury, and you've got two lawyers, witnesses, etc., etc. When the trial is over, well, during the trial, you know, the prosecution presents its case. If you've ever been on a, you know, on a jury, then you would probably think, mm, yeah, they're guilty. <laughs> oh, they're guilty. And then the defense has their turn. When the defense gets through, you think, hmm, maybe not so guilty, you know, because things begin to balance out maybe. And then in the end, there's closing arguments. Each lawyer gets to do a closing argument so the jury does not make a decision till they've heard the prosecution, the defense, the closing arguments of both lawyers. Then they've got all the information. Now, hopefully, they can make the best decision and the right decision concerning this case. That's the way it is with us in life. How many times have you heard something and you drew an immediate conclusion? Only to find out later. Only to find out later that what you heard wasn't exactly accurate. And there's more to it that you found out a little later and it caused you to back up and change your mind about the situation. Now, Haman wondered what he's thinking. The queen is about to identify him. And Esther says, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. <laughs> she pulls no punches. She didn't say, say Haman. She says, it's this wicked Haman. Haman, but she identified him correctly. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his raft, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. I think you get the, the picture I get here is this. This king is about to blow his mind. The, the, the king was not aware of all the details of this Thing that he signed for Haman. And now he's found out that his prime minister, this man that he promoted, this man he put in this position, is the very one that has put out this death warrant on all the Jewish people, which includes two people close to the king, Mordecai, who saved his life, and Esther the queen, who is his wife. He signed a decree to have his own wife killed. 
He signed a decree to have his own wife, the queen, slain. He signed a decree to have the man who discovered the plot of the two men that was going to assassinate him, he signed a decree to have him slain, and he didn't even know it. I can see him arising, the Bible says, in wrath. He left the room, went outside, clear the air, so to speak, have a little time to try to process all of this. Uh, this has come at him pretty hard, pretty fast, hasn't it? And then he returns back in. But what, what was going on at that time? You find Haman knows there's only, he has only one hope. He's going to have to make a petition to the queen and hope she can intervene, hope she can uh, uh, speak up on his behalf because he's seen the king go out and he knows the king is about to become, what? The judge and the jury. The king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. It's not looking good. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed where all Esther was. Now, you see, in, in these banquets, they oftentimes would, they didn't sit in chairs. They sat on these kind of, these couches, these, you know, uh, and everything, and would just kind of lay on, to, lay on it. And then drink out, drink the wine. Very actually, these banquets oftentimes there's very little solid food at these banquets. Uh, most of it was just drinking. <laughs> and now, when he walks back in, what does he see? Haman. He sees Haman laying on the same couch where the queen is, where his wife is. And he thinks Haman is trying to force himself upon my wife, upon the queen. Then said the king, "Will he force the queen also before me in the house?" He just can't believe what he's seeing. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. What does that tell me? That tells me that those servants that were there, when the king said this, what Haman was guilty of, what the king thought he was guilty of, was a, a capital offense. They put a covering over his face. And one of the chamberlains said before the king, Behold also the, the gallows. Behold also the gallows 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. The sentence is passed. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Now, a remaining time tonight, I want us to think about a principle that we should, hopefully you maybe have already begun to see here in the life of Haman and Mordecai. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. In the New Testament, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, uh, Be not deceived, God shall not be mocked. Now, Paul's there for a second. Be not deceived, God shall not be mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, when we talk about sowing and reaping, these are some of the things that we can easily understand. A farmer knows what sowing and reaping is all about. A gardener knows what sowing and reaping is all about. This is just a few of those principles right here. Whatever you sow, that's exactly what you're going to reap. Nobody ever planted corn and butter beans came up. Nobody ever sowed peas and, and got potatoes out of that place, right? Whatever you put in the ground is what's going to come out of the ground. 
Whatever field you plant it in, that's the field you're going to reap it in. See, a lot of people think that they're going to sow here in this life and reaping glory. That's where the false doctrine of rewards comes in. There's no such thing as rewards in heaven. You're an heir, a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is an inheritance. It's not a reward. Rewards are here. If you diligently seek the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be rewarded with the presence of the Lord and the fellowship of the Savior. That's a reward that's worth more than all the gold and silver in this world. Also, Paul says, if you sow sparingly, you shall reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you shall reap bountifully. All right, the law of sowing and reaping is illustrated for us throughout the Bible. In Mordecai's life, we find where he sowed anger, and he reaped the anger of the king. He sowed a murderous intent in his heart, and he's going to, be, to kill the Jewish people. He's going to be killed or slain by the king. When you take a look at the life of Jacob, for example, you remember when Jacob went in to his father Isaac when he was old and his eyes was dim and he slew an animal and he deceived his father in making him think he was his brother Esau. Later on in life, Jacob's going to have some sons that's going to slay an animal and they're going to bring it to Jacob to deceive him concerning his favorite son, Joseph. You're going to find where Jacob went into uh, the land where his uncle was at, and you're going to find where his uncle deceived him when he came to the woman he wanted to marry. His heart was set upon Rachel, and he worked seven years for Rachel, only to find out on the wedding night that Jacob didn't get Rachel, he got Leah. Because, you see, Jacob was not the firstborn. Esau was the firstborn. He violated the law of the firstborn, and he reminds Jacob over here in our part of the country, the firstborn is married before the next one. So he had to so he had to labor seven more years to get Rachel. Jacob did a lot of reaping concerning a lot of sowing he did in his earlier life. We find the apostle Paul gave consent to the stoning of a man by the name of Stephen, last part of Acts chapter 7. But you'll read in Acts chapter 14 where Paul is stoned himself. Whatever we sow, we're going to reap. One of the clearest examples of this you're going to find in the scriptures, you go to 1 Kings chapter 21, and you're going to find one of the most wicked men who's ever lived upon the face of this earth, right along with Haman, and his name uh, is Ahab. He's the king of Israel at this time. And there's a man who's got a vineyard, and he sees the vineyard. It's real close to where he lives, and he wants that vineyard. He offers to buy the vineyard. He offers to trade the vineyard with the man for a better vineyard. He doesn't want to do it. He says, this inheritance of my father. It meant more to him than money, you see. So he comes home dejected. And his wife, Jezebel, she says, well, I'll, I'll get the vineyard for you. And she has false witnesses come and lie concerning this man, saying he had blasphemed the name of God when he had not, and they stoned him. And when they stone her, she comes back to Ahab and says, Now the vineyard is yours. Go and get it. But I want to read you what God said about it. In 1 Kings chapter 21, we find where God sends Elijah to Ahab. Verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbit, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone down to possess it. 
And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. That's there in Samaria. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we come to verse 23. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city shall dogs eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Now the Lord has pronounced a prophecy on these two people, on Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They conspired and they slew Naboth. They killed him and took his vineyard for their possession. In chapter 22, the next chapter, you're going to find where the Syrians, uh, Elijah, excuse me, Ahab goes out in the battle against the uh, Syrians and he persuades the king of Jerusalem to go along with him. And this is Jehoshaphat. And the king of Israel, which is Ahab, says, I'll disguise myself and you put on my garments. <laughs> I don't know why in the world he would agree to such a thing as that, but he did. But see, Notice, notice verse 31. But the king of Syria commanded his thirty and two captains that ruled over his chariots, saying, Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. <laughs> so they're looking for the one they think is the king. But it turns out that's the wrong man. And so here we have Ahab's disguised. He's got on armor, but he's got on the armor of a soldier. And then one of the greatest providential texts in all the Bible, my friends, is found for us right here in verse 20, 34. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said to the tribe of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. In other words, the only place which is in the back of the man's armor, the only place, just a very small place like this, that was not covered, a man drew a bow at a venture at random and let it fly in the air, found this bark right there in the only place it could have found. He's wounded. He's not killed at this point. But they take him back where? To Samaria. They take him back to Samaria. And the battle increased that day, and the king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians and died at even. And the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot. And there went a proclamation throughout the host about the going down the sun, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his own country. So the king died, was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and he washed his armor according to the word of the Lord, which he spake. Job chapter 4, verse 8. Job said, I have come to see that he that ploweth wickedness and soweth um, evil shall reap of the same. In Proverbs 26, 27, it says, Whosoever diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and he that rolleth a stone shall come back upon him. Three different times in the Bible, twice in Proverbs, once in Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, verse 8, we're told about somebody digging a pit for somebody else, only to fall in the very same pit that they dug. Now, I, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't say something about Jezebel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we turn to 2 Kings. Remember what the Lord said about her. 
And we come over here to the, I believe, the ninth chapter of 2 Kings, and we're reading in verse 30. And when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face and tied her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace, who slew his master? He lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And there looked out unto him two or three eunuchs. And he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. And when he was coming, he did eat and drink and said, Go, see now this cursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbit, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall the dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. We find Haman again sowed anger, and he reaped the anger of the king. He sowed with the intents of his heart, with every purpose within him to carry it out, to slay the Jewish people, and he was slain of the king. And the very gallows he had erected to hang Mordecai on, he was hung himself. The end of Haman. Now, there's one thing you may have been thinking about. Haman is dead, but the decree is still active. The decree is still out there. At this point, the decree, if it's carried out, all the Jewish people are going to be slain. So what, what are they going to do about it? And that's what we're going to look at in chapter 8 in our next meeting.